I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Jane Goodall started studying chimps in the wild in 1960. Now she offers hope in these trying times. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Jane Goodall is one of the world's foremost naturalists. By studying chimpanzees in the wild, she transformed our understanding. Over the last few years, she and author Doug Abrams have had in-depth conversations about her reasons for hope for the planet. They include the amazing human intellect, the resilience of nature, the power of young people, and the indomitable human spirit. Why does she believe that hope is a survival trait? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for Trying Times. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. With higher than usual levels of influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, and COVID-19 affecting young children disproportionately, Pharmacies are running low on non-prescription medicines used to reduce fever and pain. As a result, some major chains are limiting the number of such products customers can purchase. CVS, for example, allows no more than two children's pain relievers to be purchased. Walgreens has a more generous limit of six products that applies only to online purchases. According to the Consumer Healthcare Products Association, Sales of pediatric acetaminophen and ibuprofen are running about 65% higher than last year. It urges parents to contact their children's health care providers for advice on which medicines and how much to give. Manufacturers do not report widespread shortages, and companies like Johnson & Johnson, maker of children's Tylenol, are operating their facilities 24-7. The United States is not the only country feeling the pinch. The German government, which normally caps reimbursement for medications, has announced it will allow insurers to pay up to 50% more for products such as children's pain relievers. In addition, drugs for adults such as antibiotics, blood pressure medicines, and heart medication are in short supply. However, the shortage of children's medicines is especially acute. According to a spokesperson for generic drug maker Teva, the rising cost of active ingredients is crashing into the permitted price caps and making drug production in Germany unsustainable. Moreover, supply chain problems are interfering with the flow of drugs from China and India, where most are now made. Last week, we heard about rising numbers of invasive streptococcal A infections in the U.K., There were also reports that children in Ireland, Spain, France, Sweden, and the Netherlands had become ill from that bacteria. Now the CDC is investigating the possible increase in serious Group A strep infections in the U.S. Symptoms often include a severe sore throat and fever. Strep can also cause scarlet fever, which shows up as a red rash along with fever and sore throat. Amoxicillin is often a first-line antibiotic to treat such infections. Sadly, though, this critical medicine for children is currently in short supply. 
A common food dye found in candy, cereal, some dairy products, and soft drinks may have an unexpected effect on the lining of the gastrointestinal tract. Researchers have discovered that Allura red food dye, also called FDNC Red 40, disrupts gut barrier function. This can lead to inflammation in the digestive tract. In experimental animals, exposure to this dye early in life can lead to colitis and to symptoms similar to Crohn's disease. This should be troubling since many of the foods containing this color are designed to appeal to young children. Scientists have long known that consuming a typical Western diet with lots of processed foods increases people's risk of these disorders. This food colorant is present in numerous processed foods. Its impact may well help explain the connection. According to this research, the dye increases the secretion of serotonin in the gut and disrupts the balance of microbes living there. Medicare pays for standard cancer treatments for its beneficiaries. A new study shows that the per-patient cost has risen dramatically for men with metastatic prostate cancer. That's because new medications that improve survival are very expensive. Drugs such as abiraterone, enzalutamide, and Cipulucel-T are effective but pricey, with some running nearly $10,000 a month. At this point, Medicare is paying more than $45,000 a year for each such patient. Men without prostate cancer cost the program less than $17,000 a year. Physicians are often skeptical about the care chiropractors offer. A study from University Hospitals Cleveland has found, however, that people who see a chiropractor when they first experience low back pain are less likely to get back surgery over the next two years. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Have you been overwhelmed with information about COVID-19, climate change, and violent confrontations? The headlines can make it difficult to feel optimistic, yet hope is desperately needed. How can we find anything to be hopeful about in a world that's full of turmoil? To offer you some respite from hyperventilating news commentators and scary headlines, we turn today to Jane Goodall. We won't be talking to this renowned naturalist herself, but we will learn about her life and her work from someone who spent a lot of time with her. Douglas Abrams is co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The Book of Joy, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. His latest book, co-authored with Jane Goodall, is The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for Trying Times. Doug Abrams, welcome to the People's Pharmacy. It's wonderful to be with you, Joe and Terry. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Doug, you've interviewed some of the most extraordinary individuals in the world. I, I can hardly even imagine. Your previous book was based on conversations with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. For this book, you talked with Jane Goodall. What's it like to interact with such luminaries? Well, it's an incredible privilege to be in their 
presence and in conversation with them, my job is often to really convey their humanity, their um, their doubts, their questions, their uncertainties. So it's it's a little bit different than interviewing them in a kind of journalistic context because I'm really there to find their heart and soul and share that with the world uh, in book form. And you've done that so beautifully. Doug, I'm hoping that you can tell us a bit about Jane Goodall. I first heard about her when I was an undergraduate in college, uh, which was more than a few years ago. (laughs) But perhaps some of our younger listeners may not be familiar with her name. Could you briefly describe why we should all recognize it? Well, Jane uh, Goodall is obviously a enormously renowned, iconic naturalist who went to study the chimpanzees in Tanzania, Gombe, decades ago, and has done the longest standing field research over the course of that time and revealed fascinating things about not only the chimpanzees, but our own nature. And she was sent there actually to try to understand the the chimpanzees in order to understand what our kind of ape human ancestors might have been like and to understand our own nature. She totally transformed our understanding of animals and uh, the fact that they have personalities and emotions. She saw the kind of benevolence and the sinister qualities of, of the chimpanzees in a way that gave us a mirror to look into our own nature. Um, so she is uh, kind of a touchstone and an inspiration to so many, not only because of her research, but also about the improbability of her own life. She went into uh, the forest without even an undergraduate degree. She was uh, Louis Leakey's secretary at the time when she was uh, kind of given this this task. And it was such a improbable task that um, the people, the the driver who dropped her off thought that she'd never be seen again. So she's lived this extraordinary life as a woman who, as she says, was going into the forest, went into the forest at a time when even men weren't doing that um, to study the chimpanzees. And as a result has transformed our understanding of human nature and then has been spending her life uh, over the last couple decades spreading hope around the world that we can actually deal with the great challenges that we face in our world. We're going to talk in a moment about hope. But first, what I found so incredible about this story is that the famous paleoanthropologist, as you mentioned, Dr. Lewis Leakey, hired her not because she was so brilliant, not because she had such credentials, but because she had not been indoctrinated by the university. And when she went into Gombe and was trying to, in that very first six months, observe the chimpanzees, she was experiencing both hope and hopelessness mm-hmm. because she wasn't she wasn't having much luck. But she won the trust of David Graybeard and discovered he was making tools. Can can you explain that whole process of why she was so successful because she was not indoctrinated? Yeah, that's a great point. So uh, the the famous uh, uh, paleontologist Louis Leakey had 
wanted somebody who was going to be unbiased by the kind of, you know, um, the current thinking of the time, the conventional wisdom, which interestingly was very much about giving animals numbers, not identifying their personalities, not uh, denying that they had emotions. At the time, we were called man the tool maker, and it was seen as humans were the only ones who used tools. So when she observed David Graybeard using uh, a reed to to pull uh, termites out of a termite hill as a tool to um, feast on these termites, it was quite a, a revelation because suddenly we had to recognize that other animals use tools. And really what she did was she opened up the opportunity for us to see human intelligence and human uh, life on a spectrum of intelligence across the natural world and not as exceptional, but as a culmination in many ways of a, of a greater intelligence in nature. And I think that was really kind of difficult for some people to accept, but so important to be able to see ourselves as you know, part of the natural world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in some ways, um, the moment is all is now where this has reached a crisis point where we either see ourselves as part of the natural world and figure our way to, to back into that natural world, or we're going to kind of drive ourselves off a cliff of exceptionalism and indifference to the natural world and result in the kind of climate crisis and disaster and potentially extinction of our species. So what Jane was observing back then, and as you said, it was very hard for people to kind of accept and uh, acknowledge that, you know, that we weren't just this kind of, you know, separate creation and that we were not totally, uh, you know, sui generis in the whole evolution of, of creation, um, but that we really are an extraordinary expression of, uh, you know, the, the evolution of consciousness, if you will, and the evolution of species. Um, but, you know, frankly, the, you know, the experiment in human consciousness has uh, not yet been proven successful in the long term. Uh, we certainly have been successful in mastering the world. Now the question is, can we find a way to, to earn our uh, longevity as a welcome species rather than an invasive species? Oh, that is such a good question. Doug, your book that contains the dialogues with Jane Goodall is called The Book of Hope. What is hope? That's uh, also a great question. I Well, let me start off by saying that um, I, as a born and bred New Yorker, was a little bit suspicious of hope when we started working on the book. Um, it seemed kind of like a passive, only almost Pollyanna response, like, let's hope for the best. And we don't in New York really do hope. We do kind of fear, anger, outrage, cynicism. Those are the things that uh, I think are often more comfortable uh, for a lot of us in New York, although obviously um, the Statue of Liberty stands there as a shining symbol of hope. But hope really is simply the belief that the future can be better than the present. And when we went to the hope researchers, the hope science, they say that there are three things that we're doing when we're focused on the future. We're either fantasizing about the future, in which case 
the future has no relationship to the present. So I could say, well, I'm going to be on an, you know, I'm going to play for the, the New York State, the New York Knicks or the Golden State Warriors ain't going to happen. You know, there's no, there's no realistic path to that reality. Um, or we're dwelling. This is something we do very comfortably in New York, which is, you know, we're dwelling on, you know, what could go wrong in the future. And the third thing that we can do is hope. And when we hope for the future, we are both looking at the possibility of a better future, but we're anticipating the reality of adversity and challenges, and we are facing those challenges. And they actually, the researchers said there are four components of hope and that sustain hope that we can also talk about. Well, Doug, I find the subtitle so important right now, today, because it's the Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for Trying Times. And goodness knows, these are trying times. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about that subtitle, please. Well, let me say that we, when we started on the book, I don't think we had, uh, we knew that there were challenges that we were facing. And obviously, the environmental challenges have, are longstanding. But we had no idea how how deeply troubled and challenged our world would be uh, through pandemic, through political division, uh, the kinds of crises that are really shaking all of our sense of hope in the future and in our, our hope for humanity and inhumanity. Um, right. And so that was the goal with Jane, you know, so the book of joy was let's bottle up, the joy that the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu have live with in the face of enormous adversity in their throughout their lives, and how do we learn from that? And I think in in with Jane, it was here's someone who has looked into the abyss. She's looked at human nature in its you know most brutal and destructive capacity. She's looked into the natural world. What is it that she sees there that gives her this extraordinary hope, and that we can take into our own lives. You are listening to Doug Abrams. He's founder and president of Idea Architects and co-author with Jane Goodall of The Book of Hope, a survival guide for trying times. After the break, we discuss the difference between hope and optimism. Does hope always require action? Scientists say there are four components that are essential for hope. In addition, Jane Goodall has four reasons for hope, despite these trying times. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic products developed in Germany and made in the U.S., K-A-Y-A-Biotics.com. Also by Coco Via, 
offering its Cardio Health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. More information at cocovia.com. Also by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we are looking to chimpanzees for hope. For decades, Jane Goodall has studied these amazing animals in their natural habitat. What can they teach us? Jane Goodall warns that we should not confuse hope with wishful thinking. With hope, we can identify realistic goals and a possible pathway to reach them. We also need confidence and social support. According to Jane Goodall, hope is a survival trait. It's also a social gift. We're talking with Douglas Abrams, co-author of The Book of Joy, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World, with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. His latest book, co-authored with Jane Goodall, is The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for Trying Times. Doug, I think a lot of people get confused when they hear the word hope. How is it different from, say, optimism? That's a great question. Uh, so optimism is a disposition or philosophy that everything's going to turn out for the best. As Archbishop Tutu often says, optimism can easily and quickly become pessimism. Hope is something more enduring. It's something that is not, if you will, just predicated on your philosophy or your disposition. It's an active approach to life that you can cultivate. You know, hope is something that you can actually nurture and develop in your life and your kids' lives and that we can nurture in our communities and in the world. Now, does hope always require action? Um, so, yes. I mean, this is one of the interesting things that Jane was quite adamant about, was that real enduring hope requires action. Otherwise, it's just fantasy. You know, yes, we're going to improve our, our world. We're going to deal with our problems. Yes, I'm going to get a job. Yes, I'm going to play for the New York Knicks. But if we're not taking action to make those hopes real, then that hope does not sustain for very long. Now, you don't, you can have hope that then leads to action, um, but the action itself also, it's like a cycle. It also feeds the hope. Oh, that's kind of like a a positive feedback loop, making exactly. things better. Yeah, exactly. In fact, <laughs> exactly. For a exactly. change. Yeah. Now, it, you write that scientists have identified four different components that are really essential for hope. Could you outline those for us? Sure. So the the field of hope studies, it was fascinating to, to discover that there is a field of hope studies and researchers who work in this area. And there were four components of hope that uh, we saw in the literature that were super interesting. One is that to maintain and nurture hope, you need to have realistic goals. Um, you need to have realistic pathways to get there, secondly. So you have to have realistic goals that you're going for, and then you have to have realistic pathways to get there. And then you need to have a sense of agency or confidence that you actually can use those pathways to get to those goals. And then finally, that you have a social support 
to help you overcome obstacles. Because in reality, nobody really gets to any major goals all by themselves. And so those four components. And the social support piece is fascinating because one of the researchers described hope as a social gift. It's actually something that we give to one another, we nurture in one another, we sustain in one another. You know, I, I, I really find that last one, that support piece, so critical because without support, we're kind of out there on our own. And I think of the role model that Jane Goodall has set for the rest of the world and how much support she has garnered because of her work. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if... Um, if, if you can perhaps share the, the four reasons that Jane has for hope that we can change our ways and undo some of the enormous ecological damage that we have done to this planet, um, what are they? Well, I, I would start by saying that hope is almost fractal. It's something that starts with the individual, it goes to the communal, it goes to the national, and it goes to the global. And so in working on the nature of hope, we tried to explore what was beneficial for individuals in their own individual lives, in their families, in their communities, in our nation, and in our globe. Specific to Jane's Four Reasons of Hope, for our ability to tackle the great challenges of our time, most specifically climate, but these are also uh, how we're going to tackle all of our challenges. And the first one is the amazing human intellect. The second is the resilience of nature. The third is the power of young people. And the fourth is the indomitable human spirit. And these are the four things that gives Jane hope in the future. Can we talk a bit about the amazing human intellect? It seems to me, and possibly to some other people, that uh, the amazing human intellect, it is amazing, but it has also gotten us into a lot of trouble. (laughs) That is absolutely true, and exactly what I challenged Jane around. And I think there are a couple of things to understand about this intellectual capacity. So this was really fascinating, that the amazing human intellect fundamentally is that part of our brain that has allowed us to problem solve, to have language, to to travel and think about the future. And it's actually also, it's located primarily, uh, or at least centrally in the prefrontal cortex. It's the newest kind of most human part of the brain. It's also where hope seems to reside in the brain. And this intellect has made us the cleverest of creatures on the planet and been able to go to the moon and and uh, to create rovers for Mars. But it's also obviously what has gotten us into a lot of the trouble that we've been in. And so I kind of asked Jane this question and she made this distinction of like, how can you say we have this amazing human intellect if we're not using it in intelligent ways? And she said, absolutely, we are no intelligent species would actually destroy its only home. So for us to use that intellect in an intelligent way, we have to use that cleverness with, in a truly intelligent way that she actually talks about as head and heart and as wisdom. You know, wisdom is something much different and, and greater than intellect in, in many ways in that it is an ability to think of the whole and of the long-term implications of our actions. And that ultimately 
whether we, you know, the, the, the amazing human intellect allows us to problem solve and come up with solutions to our climate crisis or any of our other challenges, whether we use that intellect, whether we adopt those policies in order to come up, you know, make those solutions to our crises uh, ubiquitous, that's a question of intelligence and wisdom. Well, I do worry, Doug, about the challenging times that we're all dealing with regarding the the pandemic and the incredible polarization that's happened, mm. not just in this country, it's happened around the world. And I think a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed, they're feeling depressed, and they may be asking, well, Doug, how can hope help us through these hard times? Well, I think there are a couple of interesting things to say. I mean, a lot of what's driving our world right now is fear, fear about the pandemic, fear about uh, the other political party. And, you know, one of the hope researchers said we're fear hope creatures. We either respond from those kind of ancient primitive fear centers of our brain or which are also related to anger or we relate from this kind of hope and vision and imagination of what's possible. Um, and, you know, what I would say is uh, you're absolutely right that we are in a time of enormous stress and strain where fear, anger, outrage, division seem to be the challenges that, that face us. And what I would say is that that amazing human intellect that we have needs to be yoked with that sense of the greater whole and that sense of greater purpose that gets us out of that division and that separation. And look, you know, we're not the only ape that can be, you know, ethnocentric, genocidal. You know, that's one of the things that Jane observed with the chimpanzees was that ability to kind of other and not have empathy for other groups and destroy one another. We have that capacity. The question is whether we focus on and nurture our capacity for virtuous behavior or whether we fixate simply on our capacity for evil. And I, you know, I asked Jane this specific question. I said, you know, look, are we 51% good or are we 51% evil? And her response absolutely turned my world upside down. She said she thinks we're split down the middle and what determines which way we go is our environment. And if you think about that, what that does is it reframes the whole conversation of good and evil, vice and virtue into all of these qualities of the human intellect and of human nature evolve to help us in certain situations to survive. And everything that we lament in ourselves as our selfishness, our greed, our aggression, those are actually adaptive qualities for certain environments. So if we create other environments that don't let those qualities win, that actually encourage what we often think of as our more virtuous side, that's what's going to determine which way get, way we go. But it is really that social and that collective that determines how the individuals behave. And I'm wondering about Jane Goodall's research and her life's work with the chimpanzees. I mean, do they have hope? Do they give us a model for how we might see a brighter future? 
Well, I, I asked her specifically, you know, do animals have hope? And she said, well, think about your dog waiting at the door for you to come home. That is a version of hope for sure. Your cats don't really care that much, probably. Yeah, but um, <laughs> maybe they do too. Some cats are a little more dog-like in that way, but and they may be at the door as well, but not our cats. But I think that, you know, the dog waiting at the door, you know, the cat has their own sense of hope. They're hoping for the fish or the, the treats. So animals do have that kind of basic sense of hope. But what we do as humans with this capacity of our prefrontal cortex is we have this ability to hope for distant goals and for the distant future and to think about how we're going to create a world that's going to be sustainable and, and livable and habitable in 2050. Uh, we're going to we think about how our children are going to be taken care of and how we're going to nurture them and our grandchildren. Those are things that we humans seem to be the only animal that we know of that has that kind of long-term hope. Now, as you describe, Jane says that the resilience of nature is another one of the reasons why she has hope. And you and she talked about a couple of survivor trees as examples of the resilience of nature. Please tell us about them. These were quite fascinating. So Jane told me a story about a survivor tree at Ground Zero, at you know the site of the Twin Towers, um, when uh, on nine eleven those collapsed. Um, they crushed this tree. It, it kind of had half a trunk left. One branch that was left. The roots were broken and black. And members of the botanical garden came nurtured this tree back to life. And today it is a thriving tree, which is hosting uh, nests for birds. Children come to the tree as a sign of nature's resilience, as a sign of our own resilience, quite frankly. That was one of the trees she told us, told me about. She told me about these other two trees that she saw in Nagasaki that were these 500-year-old camphor trees that had been exposed to the atomic blast there and like everything had just been destroyed. Um, and in this case, blackened and, and, and nobody thought anything was going to live after that, uh, bomb exploded there with the, you know, radiating the heat of the sun, you know, in Nagasaki. And those trees also have come back and people visit those trees as this sacred site of the resilience of nature, of the power of uh, our ability to heal and grow. And they give the, their little prayers and their wishes into the tree's branches. And they were quite inspiring examples of, of that resilience of nature. I'd like to ask you about another one of her concepts, and that is the power of youth, young people. And, 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 you know, it just seems to me that we are observing around the world a lot of young people who have hope in a way that older people who are perhaps more cynical and less involved and committed are just – they don't have that same energy. Tell us about her view of the power of young people. Well, Jane very early on realized that young people were a driver for change and transformation and especially for tackling the ecological crisis that we face. And 
she started a program called Roots and Shoots in 68 countries that has impacted thousands and thousands of young people and helped them to get active and take action in supporting people, animals, and nature. And I think what you describe is that young people do, particularly around the environmental crisis, recognize it's their planet. They recognize what's at stake. And they're willing to, as we saw with Greta in the youth marches, to get active and to demand changes from their, the adults and from the powers that be. Um, so the power of young people, I think, is one of, I mean, one of the ways I think that's most fascinating to think about it is we are one of these few, you know, in, in some ways, the only species to this extent that renews itself every generation and translates and educates the next, that culture to the next generation that can actually grow and develop beyond its parents and their view of, of life and the world. And so I think what you're seeing is a lot of young people who recognize that we haven't done the deed, we haven't solved the problems, and they, they're, those changes need to happen. I think you, we have to say, and I think this is really important, that we can't just pass the buck to the next generation and say, well, the young people will solve it. They are activated. Um, many of them are quite despairing as well. That should be said as well. So it's not universally that they're more hopeful than adults. I think there are a lot of young people who are suffering and despairing and, and are kind of individual expressions of the anxiety and, and depression and the despair that our whole world is reflecting. But I do think that young people are this great force for good. You're listening to Doug Abrams. He's founder and president of Idea Architects and co-author with Jane Goodall of The Book of Hope, a survival guide for trying times. After the break, we'll talk about grief and false hope. How can we avoid that? According to Jane Goodall, the indomitable human spirit is one of her four reasons for hope. What does she mean by that? Doug describes his grandfather's story and how it illustrates the human spirit. How can parents nurture their children to be hopeful and ready for the future? What is Jane Goodall's message of hope? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Also by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. And by Kaya Biotics, micro-encapsulated organic hypoallergenic probiotic products developed in Germany and made in the U.S., K-A-Y-A Biotics.com. We're talking today about the life and philosophy of naturalist Jane Goodall. She started her groundbreaking studies of chimpanzees in their natural habitat in 1960. It was Jane who first reported that we humans are not the only primates to make and use tools. She transformed our understanding of these animals. Now she's an elder statesman speaking out for action to help reverse climate change. Over the last few years, she and author Doug Abrams had in-depth conversations about her reasons for hope that we can act in time. Doug Abrams is co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The Book of Joy, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World, with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. His latest book, co-authored with Jane Goodall, is The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for Trying Times. Doug, you you mentioned that young people, too, are experiencing grief, even though they have a lot of hope. And I wonder about this idea of grief. Uh, You know, sometimes people are told to, you know, just cheer up, move on. And, you know, false hope, that's just toxic positivity. So how do we avoid this idea of false hope? and actually roll up our sleeves and get something done. Well, there are two pieces that you're talking about there that are both important to address. I mean, the idea of false hope or the fear of hoping is a really is a real uh, challenge because it's vulnerable to want something. It's vulnerable to aspire to a future that could be better than the present. There's something much more self-protective about just saying this is as good as it's going to get or to be cynical um, or in some ways, even to, you know, the despair has a kind of comforting lack of vulnerability, you know, you and and hope is vulnerable to say that you're going to improve your life. You're going to improve your family's life. We're going to improve the world. There is a vulnerability because you can be disappointed. You can not achieve what you hope to achieve. But without that aspiration and without that attempt to actually walk the path and make progress, then there really is no progress. Or as Jane says, without hope, there really is no hope. On this other side, what you were talking about, which is equally important, which is the fa- the, the, the importance of grief. And I think that uh, in particularly when we're talking about I mean, there are a couple issues about grief here. Obviously, one is this um, very personal grief that we experience. And as you know from reading the book, while I was working on the book and I was in Tanzania with Jane, my dad uh, got sick and went into the hospital and ultimately died after 
what he called his mighty journey to death over two months in hospice. And, you know, as I was working on the book, it was, you know, hope wasn't theoretical. It was, and grief was not theoretical. It was very, very personal. And so I think what we mistake is the belief that, you know, if we're going to be joyful, that we can't have sorrow. If we're going to be hopeful, we can't have uh, moments of despair or times of despair, or even that we should avoid sadness or grief. And the reality is they're all important aspects of our human nature that give us useful information. And eco-grief, specifically the fear uh, and the, the grief about what's happening to our world is absolutely essential for us to feel. And the grief is part of how we process the pain and motivate ourselves. And grief is something that brings us together as a community and helps us to take action. Doug, one of the other, actually the last one that we haven't yet spoken of, um, that Jane lists as a reason that she has hope is the indomitable human spirit. What do you and she mean by that? Well, the indomitable human spirit is uh, such a fascinating term that Jane uses. Um, and in many ways, it's the part of us that can tackle what seems impossible. So at a personal level, it can be resilience and grit and courage. But at a kind of community level or national level or species, the indomitable human spirit is what allows us together to solve and address what none of us could address individually. And, you know, one of the great role models of this is, you know, that she, she grew up during World War II in Britain, you know, was the, you know, the British people's uh, indomitable human spirit in the, in the face of one of the greatest threats to democracy and freedom in the world, which was the Nazi, Nazi powers. And, you know, she talked about how Winston Churchill was there that the only thing that really saved the British people, you know, as they, you know, she was talking about, they had these kind of scaffolding in, in the, on the shores to stop the U-boats and the, the German, you know, their Navy. And really what she said, what kept the British people going and kept their indomitable spirit indomitable were the words of Winston Churchill, you know, that we'll fight them on the streets, we'll fight them on the beaches. And, you know, really, it's this ability of our spirit to rise up and be both collective and altruistic and to see that we are so much greater than our individual fears and capacities when we fight together uh, for what is worthy of our goals. Doug, I'm going to ask a personal question. Sure. Would you tell us about your grandfather's extraordinary challenges and his indomitable spirit? Sure. My um, grandfather was actually in a trolley accident as a child. So we, you know, one of the things we talked about were kind of people who seemed to kind of beat the odds or to have that kind of grit and resilience in the face of, uh, of significant obstacles. And he lost a leg uh, in that trolley accident as, as a young man. And then he went on to become a neurosurgeon um, who separated the first conjoined twins and operate on Babe Ruth. And he would go to the kind of military bases during 
the war and show um, amputees how he had lived a rich and full life. He became a ballroom dancer. He, you know, he played tennis even with a prosthetic limb. And I think that was just one of the examples we Jane gave many others, including her her second husband, who had been shot down in the war and who sh- by rights shouldn't have been able to walk. Um, because, you know, the doctors said that where the bu- bullets were lodged in his spine, he shouldn't be able to move. And his inner strength, that sense of grit and resilience, you know, as she said, he was walking on sheer force of will. And that, that sense of will and that capacity in us individually and collectively is, I think, what Jane means by that indomitable human spirit. And I'm wondering how you have related to the story from your grandfather and how that's affected you and your relationship with Jane. Well, I think that I so uh, admire these examples, and I think Jane is an amazing one as well, of people who don't take no for an answer, you know, who are not stopped, you know, as I was saying, you know, as Jane said, you know, even you know, at the time she went into the forest, even men weren't doing that, you know, not let alone women who didn't have a college degree, you know, and that incredible grittiness and sense of willingness to, to do whatever it takes. I mean, I will say, you know, my dad, um, while he was dying in this, uh, while we were working on the book, I, you know, he had had a terrible traumatic brain injury five years before. And when he came to after, being delirious and in rehab for a month. And we said, we're so, I'm so sorry, this terrible thing has happened to you. And he said, you know, it's all, no, 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 not at all. It's all part of my curriculum. And that idea that we can use all of the adversity and the challenges that we face as part of our curriculum, as part of our learning. And frankly, we are learning, you know, in our own lives as a species, we're facing these enormous challenges But I think to go back to World War II, you know, the greatest generation was the greatest generation because they faced the greatest challenges that uh, in human history, uh, the greatest threat to democracy in and in World War II. And to face the challenges that we face, we are going to have to be called to our greatness and to be the greatest generations of our time and rise to these great challenges that we face. But we can do it. And it requires us to marshal all of that amazing human intellect, to trust in the resilience of nature, to bring all generations and including the power of young people and to recognize that that indomitable human spirit that even if we don't finish the work, even if this administration doesn't finish the work, um, we will get there if we are focused on the right goals. Now, if we are to carry forward with the belief or the conviction that the future can be better than the present, that has implications for how we're raising our children. How can parents nurture their children to be hopeful and ready for the future? Well, I think that so it's so easy for people to go from denial to despair, right? And so hope is in between, right? Denial and despair are these passive responses. And we think, I think, as parents that we either have to deny the reality of what's going on and kind of keep our kids in these bubble-wrapped realities, or um, we and they are going to move into despair. And I think that the real way to address this with our children is 
to be honest and truthful about the realities of the challenges we face, but to focus on the solutions. And I think that's the part that and the action. And that's the part that we often lose, which is we are either avoiding the challenges or we're just focusing on the the threats. And I think if we help our children to see that so many incredible people all around the world are working on these challenges, and then we find that we have hope and we can give that hope to them. And that's the other thing I would say, which is, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first, right? You have to cultivate your own hope before you can cultivate your child's hope because our children don't just hear what we say, they hear what we think and what we feel. Doug, what was it like to work with Jane? Well, people often ask that question in like, what surprised you most about working with Jane? And, you know, what surprised me most was that I knew I was going to be engaging with one of the great naturalists, the great scientists of our time. But what I didn't realize was that Jane was has a seeker's willingness to ask the big questions. Um, she's willing to go places where the you know the science may point in a direction, but it's not totally clear. But we need to get those answers as well. We need to ask those questions. So she has a seeker's willingness to ask the big questions and a scientist's willingness to uh, trust the facts wherever they may lead. And ultimately, she also had this incredible poet's desire to get it absolutely right uh, on the page to find the exact right word. I mean, we we talked about what exactly hope is. And as she describes, hope is a human survival trait. It is something that has evolved in our species to help us to create that better future. Doug, Jane Goodall has seen a lot of adversity in in her work uh, with the chimpanzees, with the with the land, how it's been abused, and that's I guess why I I find her books so important, so refreshing, so encouraging, because if if Jane Goodall can have hope despite all of the challenges that she's seen up close and personal then we too can have hope. And I wonder if you could summarize Jane's message of hope, especially right now, because we all need a survival guide for trying times, because goodness knows these are trying times. I think what Jane would say and and what she communicates in our conversation is that Yes, we have the capacity for extraordinary evil and destruction, selfishness, greed. Those are all parts of our evolved nature that have served us in some contexts. But to solve the challenges that we face now on in, in the world where one person's, uh, you know, there's no separate selfishness, right? If you can't breathe the, if, if that person can't breathe the air, you're not going to be able to breathe the air either. And ultimately we are being called to rise to an, to our human potential in a way that allows us to 
cultivate and encourage the better angels of our nature. And this is something that we can do individually, but we also have to do collectively. And it is hope is a social gift. It's something we give to one another based on our actions, our encouragement, our joining forces in a way that together we can use that incredible problem solving of our amazing human intellect. We can work with nature and its extraordinary resilience. And what we found there was that ecosystems would bounce back if we stopped destroying them within 10 to 50 years. I mean, it's an incredible way in which nature wants to survive and thrive. And then if we join forces with young people and encourage them and teach them, if we create that environment that encourages the best of them, then the indomitable human spirit takes over and we recognize that we are up to the task. Doug Abrams, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Carrie and Joe, such a pleasure. You've been listening to Doug Abrams. He's founder and president of Idea Architects and co-author with Jane Goodall of The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for Trying Times. His previous book, a New York Times bestseller, was The Book of Joy, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Outward Arsky engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Also by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today's show is number 1,284. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. If you'd like to add a comment about the show, look for the post on our website. You could enter your comment at the bottom of the show notes for 1284 under the podcast tab. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. 
All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.